Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So there's also some irony to a crockpot being on the stage. There's a little bit of context for this, and we're going to come back to it. But if, if you don't know my wife, you should know that she's very literal. And years ago... Uh, my stepmom Mary texted us right before Christmas and said, "Hey, what what do you want me to what do you want me to cook around Christmas? Because I'm kind of a food snob and high maintenance." And I said to my wife, thinking this was between us, I said, uh, "Tell her to leave the crock pot in the cupboard." But Teresa texted Mary. Adam says, "Leave the crock pot in in the cupboard." So, in case you don't know my wife, don't don't expect her to be sarcastic about anything. Here's what, here's what I'd like to do this morning is uh, there's, this, there's a few questions that I'd like to ask and if you're with us for the first time, we're really thrilled that you're here, especially in the middle of summer. We get that uh, there's lots of other things to do. Years ago, I worked for a guy named Vern and he's, I dare say, a, a 10 talent person, the single most talented person or one of them that I've ever known personally and he's, I mean, he's just got a, f- a, a full deck. I mean, he's, he's intelligent, he's funny, he's witty, uh, he's athletic, he's good looking, like he's all of it. And therefore, if you know people like that, sometimes they get away with things that the rest of us just don't. Uh, but in, in, in every line of work, in every line of life, in every relationship, there's this thing that often happens. Uh, maybe this has happened to you, but have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and initially, as they shared some complaints or some grievances or some frustrations or some criticisms or some judgments, initially it was represented as though they were talking about someone else? But the longer the thing goes on, the more you start to think, wait a minute, I think she's actually talking to me. Like, have you ever had that? Like, so there, there's this kind of abstract thing going on, but over, uh, over eventually you're like, I think they're confronting me, but they're not actually addressing me, they're addressing this abstract thing, but I think they're talking to me, and then it gets really awkward. Well, Vern, what Vern taught me is in that situation, and I watched him do this, I heard him do this, it's about the time he started to have that question of, are you talking to me? I was going to go show that scene from the taxi driver, but realized it's really not in any way appropriate. But are you talking to me? About the time he thinks that, he just looks at them, and Vern, again, he has the, the, the moxie, but also the, the charisma to just look at them and go, so, hold on, he, he would say, am I being confronted right now? He just wanted to clarify, like, is, is that what we're doing here? I've never actually done that. I do not have the guts or the moxie or the charisma or the courage But I think it's a fair question uh, to ask of Matthew. In fact, I think one way to understand the gospel, uh, the 23rd chapter of the gospel of Matthew is I think what Matthew's trying to do is get us to ask that question of ourselves. Like, like who is Matthew talking to? Like, who who is he trying to address? We can go to that next slide. Like, who, who is he perhaps trying to confront in this whole situation? 
Because it seems like it's one of those situations where, where it would initially seem he's talking about some people, but my goal this morning is to demonstrate that perhaps the more time we sit with it, we realize he's talking about some people, but he's not talking to them. Perhaps he's talking to us. Now, I realize that for, for many of us, we, we don't come to church because we're looking to study the Bible. We come to church because we have lives and marriages and jobs and uh, different tensions and health issues, and, and I understand all that. We pride ourselves on saying we're not here to teach the Bible. We're here to help us learn how to follow Jesus and, and how to live life. And so it's not just this abstract teaching on the Gospel of Matthew. I think we're gonna get there, but I'm gonna ask for a little bit of patience because there's a couple other questions that I think help us get to that. The first one is, have you ever considered uh, the extent to which you sabotaged your own life as you have it, as you love it? Ever considered like what, what that would look like? Uh, what, what decisions would you make? Uh, what moments of weakness would you give into that would cause you not to ruin your life because God is forgiving and humans are resilient, but to, to create some bad consequences for a stretch? Ever thought about what that would be for you? I mean, there's these kind of low obvious ones or seemingly obvious. Would it be around substance and drugs and alcohol? Would it involve some sexual decisions? Uh, would it just involve like a fit of rage and anger? Uh, would, it, would it be born of some kind of fear or insecurity? Because I think taken uh, just at face value, it would seem like that's what they are. But what if what Matthew's doing here is demonstrating that what Jesus was convicted of is that that's actually not it? That those are all symptoms of this other thing that in one sense is way simpler, but in another sense even more dangerous. I think one way we see this illustrated is, uh, have you ever noticed that whether it's in sports or in business or in the social sector or just in Hollywood, that we have this weird fascination with rise and fall stories? You know, stories of people who are wildly successful and then do something and, and then documentaries or podcast series that document with great detail and precision all the ways this thing went so bad. And on the one hand, I, I hope we can all agree that it's important that justice is served when, when people with power do terrible things to other people. But I also think there's this question of why. What's the fascination? I mean, think about it right now. If you're in the church space, you, you're probably aware that there's a very well done podcast series that's been put out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill was a church in the Seattle area led by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Uh, I've not listened extensively to the series because to be honest, I didn't really have much harmony with Mark Driscoll in his glory days. It just never connected with me. But it's a story and it's really wildly popular right now and it's being used in all kinds of ways because it's a story about this church that had it all going on and then it all fell apart and lots of Christians are listening to it, but the question that I think Matthew 23 would have us ask is, is why? And when do we know if we're taking in those kinds of stories? It doesn't have to be church. It happens in business. It happens in Hollywood. It happens in sports. How, how, do, we, how do we discern when we're listening to those in ways that are actually healthy and functional? And when we're listening and out of, to those out of these much less healthy places, these toxic places, these places of insecurity and pride and just sheer boredom. What if Matthew 3 is kind of getting into all of this? And I just want to jump into it. In Matthew 23, 1, it says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, and I want to stop there because as we've explored throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's three major crowds in the Gospel. There's three major groups of people, excuse me. 
There's crowds, which we, we said early on, those are the amused. They're neither in nor out. They're just entertained. Uh, there's the religious people. They're closed. They've already decided. And then there's these people who are open. Uh, they're willing to entertain the idea that Jesus' unique ideas, one better than David, are actually worth considering, even if not ready to commit to it yet. So who's Jesus talking to here? Notice who he's not talking to are the very people that he's speaking about. And if you're with us last week, and for the last few weeks, you'll, you will know that Jesus, the context of Matthew 23 is Jesus is still on the Temple Mount. These are some of his last major public moments before ultimately retiring with his disciples, having a meal, and then getting arrested in a garden. He's still in the Temple Mount, which is to say, like, he's still standing at the Capitol. He's still in the middle of the mall. Like, he's right in public space. And just last week, we looked how in Matthew chapter 22, what Jesus addresses is his own disciples by telling a story about a wedding banquet and then addressing some of the most vexing questions from the religious leaders of his day in order to say, hey, this following me thing, you can't just drift. It won't come easily. It does take dedication. It's simple but demanding. All are invited, few are chosen. And now we move into Matthew 23. And it's as though Matthew wants us to see Jesus turning his attention from his enemies, from his adversaries, from from the low-hanging fruit of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes to those who are listening to him, as well as some who are just amused. And he addresses them and he says this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Before I studied this, I thought I knew what Moses' seat was. As I studied it, I realized there's more nuance to it than I thought. Some of you may have heard this addressed as it's the main seat inside the, inside the synagogue where the leader that day would sit. That's possible. It also obviously references back to some Old Testament ideas with, with Moses himself. But notice that the 30,000 foot is he's talking about religious people who have power. And he wants to talk, not necessarily to them, but about them. And he says this, therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. So there's a core criticism, and what is that core criticism? They don't do what they say. They don't, uh, as Rob Bell said years ago, they don't smoke what they sell. Like, they're, they're, they're not actually practicing what they're preaching. Is he saying that therefore both what they teach and the way they live is, is corrupt? As we'll see, he's not actually taking exception to what they're teaching. He continues to affirm the value of what they're saying. He's calling them out because they don't do it. And this gets back to the question, who's Matthew talking to? Who is he addressing? Is, is, is this just another instance where he wants to remind persecuted people who are part of this new early church that those people who are persecuting them will be held accountable? That's possible. I, I think that's the simplest, uh, the simplest reading. But if we're talking not just about Jesus and what he did in A.D. 30-something, we're actually talking about Matthew and what he wrote in A.D. 70-something, then what we know is that Jesus is addressing the early church. Matthew's addressing the early church. And Why? Why is he retelling this story? And the question that I want to pose to you, and you can wrestle with it and choose to agree or disagree, but what if what he's doing at this point, while speaking to early church leaders, is, hey, what what if what he's doing, actually, let me finish that thought, what if what he's doing is using the Pharisees and the scribes as a negative archetype? What if what he's doing isn't so much trying to once again draw attention to all the ways the religious people have failed and, and why they'll pay a price for it. What if he's warning his very own 
that what can happen to, to happen to them can also happen to us. That what the Pharisees became, we can become. See, this kind of brings me back to the, the question of stories like the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Is, is the, the, the purest, the, the most mature response to hear those stories and dance on their corpses and celebrate that's not me? Or is, is the real highest value of those stories, in, adjusti- in addition to justice being served, and I don't want to trivialize that, is the higher value, the realization that not only could it be me, it could have been me. Uh, Vern, uh, while I'm on the topic of Vern, he, he used to often say, uh, all of us are one decision away from the curb, or the gutter, I think was the way he said it. It's the same story, isn't it? What if what Matthew is doing here is looking, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to check out in his present form. What if Matthew is using this warning to the early church to warn them of who they're capable of becoming? This isn't just a a, a Jewish story, this is a human story. And therefore, I think we do well to sit with the criticism. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Again, we have to ask the question, therefore, is it the disciplines and the practices that are themselves burdensome and should be avoided? Or is it that the point of like, leadership and healthy Christians is not just is that they actually do those things? I mean, is he saying prayer has no value? Or is he saying, you better pray? Is he saying scripture has no value? Or is he saying, don't talk about it if you're not doing it? I think we, I know I, especially as a Protestant, I want to read this section and see Jesus trivializing spiritual practices and religious practices and church practices. But it's, I would argue, not what he's doing. He's not criticizing the practices, the rhythms, the daily and the weekly and the monthly and the yearly disciplines. To me, it seems like he's actually trivializing that, that some people, they can talk long about them but they don't do them. A guy named Howard Hendricks used to say, uh, they're all like travel agents handing out brochures to places they themselves have never visited. Verse five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Here's just a picture of those, just so that we're all clear on what he's talking about, still used today. Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, is the tool corrupt, or is there something else behind that that's actually what is corrupt, because now it seems like he's beginning to expose what is the core issue. Verse six, they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all students and call no one on earth, uh, on, on your father on earth and call no one your father on earth for you have one Father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Is he saying, therefore, you can't be called father or teacher or instructor? Or what's going on here? Like, if he's criticizing, don't become them, and you can become them, what have they become? Like, if you were to say, like, here's the thing to avoid, what would you be, say, what would you be considering avoiding? Doesn't it have something to do with status? something to do with reputation, something to do like that the human experience is such that people start out on a path and their journey is towards God, but before long what happens is their journey is less about God and it's more about other people associating them with God. 
It's less about having connections with God and it's more about other people seeing them as spiritual giants. It's not lost on me that I'm probably more prone to this than you are because of the nature of what I do, but what if this warning is in fact for all? This deep warning. Like back to the question, what's most likely to take you out? What if Jesus had been warning us about this from the very beginning? Some of you remember last summer we talked through the Sermon on the Mount, something that I would argue and I'm certainly just joining with tradition in saying that it's the greatest expose on the human condition and the invitation of Christ that's ever been heard or offered. Remember we talked about how, how Jesus says, listen, 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 everyone wants to tell you that murder is the problem and I'm here to tell you murder's not the problem. Anger and contempt is the problem. Everyone wants to tell you that, that who you sleep with and don't sleep with is the problem. I'm here to tell you, no, no, it's how you view you people and fail to value people. It's lust that's the problem. Everyone wants to tell you, avoid vows and contracts. No, 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 it's not about that. It's about deal with your heart's need to control others. There's this beautiful invitation into this completely different way of being human and I have to often remind myself, like I shouldn't be frustrated when other people don't share it because Jesus was a radical It's a completely different lens through which we're invited to see life. And just because we're coming out of a Christian era where it seems like everyone generally held it, maybe we should be less shocked that not everyone generally does because it was in its own form quite different. So what's going on? What if, in the? because remember, in that early story, Jesus does the invitation and then he moves into a warning, a warning about that which is most likely to destroy your kingdom life. And do you remember what he talked about? He says, hey, when you pray, just, just be careful that you're actually talking to God, not trying to impress the people who hear you pray. And when you fast, just make sure that that's actually between you and God, not a way of gaining power and status with other people who are competing to be the most spiritual. And when you give, do it as quietly as you can so that you are sure that you're doing it because you have a generous heart, not because you want to see, be seen as someone who has a generous heart. Here it seems he returns to the exact same topic. Be careful. It'll take you out. You know, I'm so proud of our staff. We, we learned from Vern, like this, the value of excellence. And 201, Lexi with kids and Gay in the nursery and Justin with tech and sound and, and, and Hannah with all, all the hospitality and Doris in the way she takes care of our business and so many of you who volunteer on their teams. Like we pick up microscopic pieces of popcorn off the carpet and we run sound and we get transitions better than the pros sometimes and we play this great music and we do all these things in the name of excellence. And we do that because God is excellent and we're trying to eliminate distractions on Sunday morning. But what's the inherent danger of those movements. Isn't it that it quickly becomes not about God and you, but about narrate, a brand, me, a a person holding a guitar? What if there's this really dangerous thing called status and it's easily overlooked and yet it's it's one of the great evils? So to the crockpot. I wanted one of the principles of teaching is, you can bring those up here, Justin, would you? Are they hotter than Hades? <laughs> okay, good. Because I, I, one of the principles of studying the text, maybe this will help you. Uh, we, I'll take them. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, they're, they're doing pretty good. So we're going to play hot potato. I want to see if we can get this 
up there across the back. Ellie, we were going to loop you guys in up there, but there's only two of you, so uh, we're going to leave you out. So we're going to, we're, not everyone has to touch it, we're, we're just going to loop this down through the room, back and over here, and then this one up this way, just to kind of illustrate something. Ready, Andy? Hopefully you're all with me on the metaphor, but like what if, what, what if that's the word picture that Jesus is trying to create? Dallas Willard used to say when you get a praise, uh, see, it, see it like a, a balloon filled with helium in your hand to let it go immediately. He had the same kind of response towards when something didn't go well, this like constant like let it go, let it go, let it go. And listen to what Jesus says is actually the, the proper opposite. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. There's this profoundly invasive and I would argue important conversation happening throughout culture right now and it's basically just this question of like are churches even good? Like is, is, is religion even good? Is Christianity even good? And I wonder if uh, even the most devout of Christ follower ought to make allowance that there are times when it's fundamentally not. Jesus defined them that when it becomes about you and your power and your prestige and your values, your goodness, eh, we probably are better off. Not probably, we are better off without that. My friend Fred pointed out to us years ago, like we often do things backwards. Like when someone hits a home run, we take them to ice cream. And when they help someone change their flat tire, we barely recognize it. When our kids come home with an A, it's, it's dinner and, and money and lots of other things. But when we hear a story of them like doing something kind, a character thing, it goes uncelebrated. What if we are status-seeking machines and it's a core of our undoing? And what if Jesus' faith actually finds this way of recognizing that the pursuit of status is it's invasive, it's pervasive, and it's to be constantly avoided? that to the extent that Christianity is about others, it is good. It does contribute something good. You know, we're talking about all these different spaces from law enforcement to teachers, all these different institutions, as if it's either all good or all bad. Churches. What if it's not the right question? Because there's a way of doing any of those things that's about self, and there's a way of doing any of those things that's an extension of God's kingdom. In January, we're going to open up, open up to the book of Galatians and do it similar to Matthew, though not nearly as long. But what I love about Galatians is its general focus is this push back against the largely Protestant evangelical notion that God's desire is to get us into heaven. And it's really an early letter from Paul that depicts that God's desire is for heaven to come crashing into earth. Not in this utopian kind of way, but in this way that, that embodies the kingdom of God, but it happens through people not because they're orators or musicians, not because they're wealthy, but because they're servants first. So when we go back to how are you most likely to sabotage your own future, what if the answer is actually far simpler and maybe even more scary than we often would think? That the issue is when, when we cease to see ourselves as servants, then we create lots of problems. And to the extent that you're trying to navigate your way through this, and I think the music David and Deidre picked are, are so inviting in this respect, that, that the way through with Christ is this way in which you identify yourself with that of a servant who isn't seeking to be the star of the story, but to reclaim the original humanity, to recapitulate humanity 
by allowing Christ to dwell through and shine light on who God is. As you consider that which, the ways in which you're likely to sabotage, maybe it's helpful to simplify it just a tinge. So we want to create some space just for you to give space for God to go like, okay, so here's maybe some areas where your status seeking actually is your undoing. Maybe there's even some ways where he would go like, good job, because you, in this area, you've, you've turned a healthy corner. And as, as David and Deidre lead us in the first song, we're going to have communion elements over here, and if you've not done communion with us before, we'll loop from bread over there across the front of the room to wine and then back to your seat, and Justin will jump up here and lead us through. So I'd like to pray, God. Jesus, we just thank you that um, you see us coming, like that who we are, who we're meant to be, and, and, and who left to ourselves and evil, who we're likely to be, it's not lost on you. Uh, that this is not a story of a God who wants to impose himself on us, uh, but who wants to lead us into the most, most full and beautiful expressions of what it means to be human. And so God, my, my prayer this morning would be that you'd identify those, those areas where uh, the way through is to reclaim the Jesus notion of here to serve. We love you, God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.